0: Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. The first article written about AIDS in the public press was written by Dr. Larry Mass, a gay doctor for a gay newspaper, The New York Native, in May of 1981 and it was called cancer in the gay community. Something was happening. People were getting really sick, and nobody knew why.
1: This is Outcasting, public radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Casper, an Outcasting Youth participant. June 2019 marked the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. In 1969, the Stonewall Inn was a gay bar in New York City's Greenwich Village. In those days, police raids of gay bars were commonplace. Newspapers often printed names, and sometimes photos of people arrested during these raids. Being publicly outed as what we now think of as LGBTQ in this way could lead to the loss of homes, jobs, and families. During one such raid on a hot night in late June 1969, patrons at the Stonewall Inn, eventually joined by many other people, rose up and fought against the police. This led to a series of riots over the next several nights. In the wake of the Stonewall Uprising, new activist groups were formed and took hold, and the Stonewall Uprising came to mark a major turning point in LGBTQ activism. Pride celebrations around the world commemorate the events that started at the Stonewall Inn in late June 1969. On this series, Outcaster Andrew talks with Andy Hum, a veteran gay journalist and activist based in New York City. Andy is the co-host of the weekly TV news program, Gay USA. On this program, we continue our discussion of LGBTQ history and activism following the Stonewall Uprising and into the 1980s. This is the second part of a three-part
0: series.
2: Andy Hum, welcome back to Outcasting.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here.
2: Last time, we talked about LGBTQ activism before the Stonewall Uprising, which took place 50 years ago in late June and early July 1969. In the aftermath of the uprising, the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activists Alliance were formed. Can you tell us about the purposes and goals of these groups and what they did?
0: Well, Gay Liberation Front was very multi-issue. It went after every liberation issue you could imagine, African-American rights and women's rights, everything. It just covered everything. So it was kind of chaotic, and it kind of burned itself out after two years. The Gay Activists Alliance split off from GLF as basically saying, we want to be a single-issue organization. There's no group just working on gay rights, although there was the Mattachine Society. We just want to focus on that. And GAA, Gay Activist Alliance, was a very militant group. They got in your face. They had what they were called zaps. People think that the marriage movement started in the 90s or something. They took over the Marriage Bureau in New York once and just started an- answering the phones. They said, no straight weddings today, just gay <laughs> weddings. They sent people away. Is film of this. You can look this up. Google this. You can watch this on-, on YouTube. They took over the offices of the Daily News because they were so anti-gay, the New York newspaper. They zapped you if you were not uh, supporting gay rights, and that was very brave. Some of them got beat up over it. And the other thing that the Gay Activist Alliance did, which is so important, in 1971, they had the idea, well, we have a human rights law in New York, right? That protects people on the basis of race and religion and ethnicity and things like that. Let's cover gay people in the human rights law. And they came up with the term sexual orientation. We all use the term commonly now, right? It's even in the federal gay rights bill, which hasn't passed yet. And they started fighting for this in the New York City Council. And that idea spread across the country. It started passing in cities. It passed in Minnesota in Minneapolis in 1974. It passed in a lot of big cities. It passed in San Francisco in the late 70s when Harvey Milk came in. But even though New York conceived the idea of the bill... In New York City, it didn't pass until 1986. I was there. I worked on it for 11 years. It was very embarrassing that it took New York City, which you think of as so liberal, that long to pass a basic gay rights bill. And it's because New York City is really a very conservative city, especially in those days when you think of Brooklyn and Staten Island and Queens. These places were very reactionary, and it was very hard to get the votes of the council members there. But we finally did it.
2: So tell us about Harvey Milk, one of the first openly gay elected officials in a large city in the United States.
0: Yeah, Harvey Milk was originally a New Yorker. He's from Long Island, like I am. But uh, he had worked in New York. He had worked on Wall Street. He was kind of conservative. But then he got involved in the theater in New York with uh, the public theater and things like that and sort of got a little bit more hippie-ish. And then he moved to San Francisco and he opened a camera shop on Castro Street, which is the heart of the gay neighborhood there. And because he was sort of in the center of the action there, he decided he wanted to run for office. He made several unsuccessful runs for office in San Francisco for, I I believe, State Assembly and for the city council. But what happened when he got elected, I believe the year is 1978, was they decided to elect people by districts in San Francisco rather than at large. And that made it easier for somebody from the Castro to essentially have a representative. And Harvey won his election. There's a wonderful film about it called The Times of Harvey Milk. Of course, it ends in his assassination. But while he was on the city council, he got the gay rights bill passed and a lot of other things. Harvey was very dedicated to a lot of social justice causes. He was very close to the labor movement. But in California, they mounted a referendum to ban gay teachers, and not just ban gay teachers throughout the state, but to ban anybody who supported gay teachers. It was outrageous. And when they did the initial polling on it, we thought we were going to lose horribly. Eventually, we got the president to come out against it, Jimmy Carter, and Ronald Reagan, who was this right-wing governor out there and was running for president himself around that time... He actually thought this was going too far and he said, don't vote for it. And we won. So Harvey Milk and Sally Gearhart was the lesbian activist who was his co-chair. We won that victory over, I believe it was called Proposition 6. And shortly after that, Harvey gets assassinated by another city council member who had quit the city council, a guy named Dan White. And he had quit the city council he wasn't making enough money they didn't pay them much in those days and he was originally a fireman so he came back to city hall to get his job back from the mayor and when mayor moscone wouldn't give him his job back dan white pulls out a gun and kills him and then he goes downstairs and he kills harvey milk because harvey didn't want him back on the council because then they had a chance to make it a more liberal body we had demonstrations in new york about that when that happened everybody was infinitely sad that night and somewhat angry. But then when people really got angry was when Dan White was put on trial for the murder of Harvey Milk. He was given a five-year sentence. People felt sorry for him because he had, he had a jury of his peers in San Francisco, people like him, who had sympathy for him. That night, that was called White Night. There were riots in San Francisco. They burned a lot of police cars. We had a huge demonstration in New York over that. I remember that very well. And the police by the way took a lot of retaliation against the gay people after that, busting into the bars, busting up the establishments. So it was a very perilous time. Harvey by the way, he was an inspiration and he was probably the most visible gay politician, but Openly gay people had been elected to public office before him in Michigan, uh, as early as the early 1970s, people were elected there. But he was just the most visible. And a lot of people started running for office after that and started getting elected.
2: Earlier on Outcasting, we've interviewed Gilbert Baker, who was the creator of the Rainbow Flag. Can you tell us a little bit about his creation of the Rainbow Flag just briefly um, and sort of what that meant for the movement?
0: I knew Gilbert very well in his New York years. And he did this with a bunch of other people working out of dyes that were put in garbage cans and they sewed all this thing together. And it was for a Gay Freedom Day, which was their pride day in San Francisco, that he developed this symbol. And he had, had a big story behind it. Each color, stripe, and the flag stood for some principle about love and liberation and all those kinds of things. And it quickly caught on in San Francisco, But it didn't really catch on widely until Gilbert put together a flag that was a mile long that he brought to New York in 1994 for the 25th anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion. We had this big march in New York, not up Fifth Avenue, but up First Avenue past the United Nations with this massive rainbow flag. And Gilbert really wanted to get this thing out there. So at the end of the march, you've got people there from all over the world. He tears up the flag into various pieces and gives it to people who were going all over the world. And then it, the rainbow really catches on as an international symbol of the movement. It was quite something. He never copyrighted the flag. He gave it away. And he made lots of different kinds of rainbow flags over the years. And now you see a rainbow, you think of gay.
2: So how would you sort of summarize the progress of the gay rights movement in the 70s, you know, from Stonewall until the advent of AIDS in 1981? Well,
0: you know, the movement in the mid-70s, initially what we were protesting was things like police harassment, the ability to even function and be in our bars and get our organizations registered. When Lambda Legal Defense in 1973 applied to New York State to be registered, they were rejected at first. It it had to go all the way up to the Court of Appeals because they thought this was an immoral organization. After all, they were arguing for the legalization of sodomy, which was against the law. They should have been able to do it, but they they were given a hard time. They had to win a Court of Appeals decision to form this gay legal advocacy group. But we were making headway. The police were kind of leaving us alone. So there were gay bars to go to that weren't mafia run. There were bathhouses. You were less harassed on the street. Less, not entirely, but less. So people were starting to feel that we had our own spaces. We can form our own organizations. There's places for us to go. And people were letting their guard down. They weren't as involved in the movement. Then in 1977... We'd passed a few gay rights laws here, there, and everywhere around the country. Miami had passed one, I guess, in 76. So Anita Bryant, who was a famous singer who did orange juice commercials, but also was evangelical Christian, she formed a group, Save Our Children, to overturn the gay rights ordinance in Miami. This was unheard of, to overturn a civil rights law through a popular referendum. And so, you know, a lot of us got involved in that by sending money or expertise down there, but that law was overturned by a two-to-one margin, and it shocked everybody. It shocked us. My God, Miami, we considered it a fairly liberal city, a lot of Jewish people, a lot of Latinos. We thought we'd do pretty well. We lost. Two-to-one. And... There were huge demonstrations all across the country about that, especially in the big cities. And in New York, we formed the Coalition for Lesbian and Gay Rights. It sort of reinvigorated the movement. It taught us that we were now experiencing what you'd call backlash, that this is not going to come easily. Even though we'd had a lot of successes, we got gays out of the index of mental disorders, they're not raiding the bars anymore. We had to realize that Our legal status was not that great in society, and we had to fight and organize. So that kind of reinvigorated the movement. And then lots of organizations were formed. You know, you had groups for gay older people like SAGE. You had groups for younger people like the Institute for the Protection of Lesbian and Gay Youth. Academic groups, all kinds of groups, proliferated as a result.
2: So then, beginning in the 1980s, the gay community sort of began to be overcome by the AIDS crisis. So how was the AIDS crisis first discovered?
0: The first article written about AIDS in the public press was written by Dr. Larry Mass, a gay doctor for a gay newspaper, the New York native, in May of 1981. And it was called Cancer in the Gay Community. Something was happening. People were getting really sick and nobody knew why. I know people who died in those days and we just thought they were dying of lung cancer or something. It was inexplicable. So Larry wrote this article that kind of alarmed us in May. And then on the July 4th weekend, the New York Times reported on a report from the Centers for Disease Control about an outbreak of Kaposi's sarcoma and pneumocystis pneumonia in men in New York and I think Los Angeles, San Francisco. These cases, enough of them appeared that the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report had this. And the New York Times wrote a little story about it on the back page of the newspaper that everybody read on the July 4th weekend, and it got really scary. And I remember we didn't know what to do about it. People were just getting really sick. And Larry Kramer invited everybody to his apartment in Greenwich Village, well over 100 of us, to listen to a doctor named Dr. Alvin Friedman Kine describe, this was in August of 81, to hear about what was going on. It scared the crap out of us to listen to this and how horrible it was. It's not exactly portrayed accurately in the movie of the normal heart, which Larry wrote. It's a little more sensationalized. We listened intently. We wanted to do something about it. And Larry and his friends formed the gay men's health crisis to respond to it and tried to start raising money about it. Larry himself went out to Fire Island that weekend holding a tin can to raise money. He got 60 bucks donated. That's how bad it was. But it got so bad that GMHC grew pretty quickly, started providing services, and did a lot less advocacy... We were trying to fight it on the medical front and on the service front because people had to be taken care of. But there was really almost nothing that could be done for people. There were no treatments, no drugs. It was one of the most horrific things you'd ever want to live with. People dying quickly and mysteriously. They didn't even identify the cause of AIDS until about late 83, early 84, they identify the HIV virus. They called it something else then. But imagine... We didn't even know what caused it. There were all kinds of theories, but nobody even know what caused it. And then it took a little while longer to find even a test for the virus. So everybody was getting infected and nobody, you know, some people took measures of protection, kind of figured it had something to do with sex <laughs> eventually. And people started using condoms and practicing safer sex even before they identified the virus. But it was a tremendously scary time. And, you know, people were even afraid of their own friends and their lovers. I mean, because the virus has an incubation period of 11 years. So people are walking, they might get something that looked like the flu initially, but then they're infecting everybody for 10 years and showing no symptoms whatsoever. And then they get deathly ill and die. So it was horrendous. All we did is go to funerals in those days and fight. Obviously, we weren't fighting hard enough because in 1987, Larry said, we've got to do something much more radical. And he formed the ACT UP group. And this is a group of mainly young men, but many lesbians and non-gay people who formed this radical group to really fiercely fight this. And they never stopped fighting until the thing was brought under control. Massive radical actions, lots of arrests, very in your face, because they were dying. People were peeling off like crazy. It was a terrible time. And don't forget, that's in the mid-80s. They didn't come up with the proper treatment to really control this until about 1995, 96, when they came up with the protease inhibitors that were really able to get this under control. And before 1995, 96... People were really dying at a a tremendous rate from uh, HIV-AIDS. And then, all of a sudden, you had these treatments that if you took them, we're going to pretty much keep it somewhat under control. And we're still working on new treatments.
1: This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. Online at outcastingmedia.org. June 2019 marked the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, a series of riots that marked a major turning point in LGBTQ activism. Our guest on this outcasting series is the veteran gay journalist and activist Andy Hum. He's talking with outcaster Andrew about how LGBTQ life and activism have evolved over the decades.
2: So earlier you mentioned the backlash to the growing rights movement in the late 70s, but AIDS precipitated an even bigger backlash against LGBTQ community socially and politically. So can you tell us about that?
0: Well, sure. I mean, there were there were people proposing to put us in camps. They did put us in camps in Cuba. William F. Buckley was a famous conservative columnist in those days. He wanted people to be tattooed on their rear ends if they had HIV. There were closing of gay spaces, closing of bathhouses. You can argue that some of this was justified, uh, you know, in terms of getting it under control, but it wasn't done rationally. The main thing is Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. He was an awful man. He hated gay people, uh, even if he had some gay friends like Rock Hudson. Ed Koch was the mayor of New York. He was for gay rights, ostensibly. He was fairly conservative on this stuff, and he didn't act properly in the beginning as we needed to. Even Margaret Thatcher in England did a better job, and, you know, she was a horrible person. Just before AIDS, there was something called Legionnaire's disease that infected a bunch of people who were at a Legionnaire's convention, and it was terrifying and horrible, and they did something about it, and they took care of it. In this thing... They seemed to be happy with who was dying, gay people, Haitians, uh, injecting drug users. And the concern of the society was practically nil. Ronald Reagan didn't talk about AIDS publicly until 1987. I was there. It was at an Amfar benefit in a tent in Washington. And he started to speak. And then he, he said some things. And we were desperate for him to take some leadership and... Then he said something bad about mandatory testing, and we started to boo him, and we booed him hard because he was a monster. I mean, I mean, he allowed he allowed that virus by not taking the proper measures to get out of control in the United States and to get out of control out of around the world. And where are we now? Wait for this. Thirty-five million people have died of AIDS, and thirty-five million more people are infected with HIV. And you can blame it. On people who hated gay people and people who hated injecting drug users who just didn't want to get really busy about getting it under control. So,
2: in the middle of all of this was the Bowers v. Hardwick Supreme Court ruling. Can you tell us about that?
0: It was quite shocking. So, it's 1986. It's right after we passed the Gay Rights Bill in New York. So, we were pretty happy, at least in New York. And then, you know, those Supreme Court decisions come out late June, sometimes early July and this was late very late june and by a 5-4 decision the supreme court said it is constitutional to ban gay people from making love by a 5-4 decision and what a punch in the gut that was because it was going to keep us illegal which had a lot of consequences and i remember that night we had thousands of people in sheridan square i'm sure across the country We took over 6th Avenue, we sat on the street and blocked it. And then it was followed by the July 4th weekend, and we said, we're going to all gather in Sheridan Square again on July the 4th. This was also the 100th anniversary of the Statue of Liberty. So we had 10,000 people who marched downtown where all the tourists were to celebrate the Statue of Liberty, and we were militantly protesting that they said we were still illegal. And this had a lot of consequences. You know, sodomy was legal in New York, but it was still illegal in a lot of states. And what that means is they can deny you a job because they say you're part of a criminal class. We can't hire you. And it, you know, it was really awful. So it took 17 years to reverse that at the Supreme Court with the... uh, Lawrence v. Texas, and I, without, so the Texas sodomy law was finally challenged. Seventeen years later, I actually personally talked to George W. Bush about that when he was running for president. Uh, I went to one of his fundraisers as a reporter, and then pretended to be a supporter because I was wearing a suit. And I said, <laughs> "Governor," because it was his law. I said, "Why are why are you in for? Why are you defending the sodomy law in Texas?" He said, "Oh, he thought I was a supporter." He said. Don't bring that up. That law's not used. That law's not used. No. I mean, sure, they weren't arresting people right and left for sodomy. They weren't, you know, they very rarely actually went into your home to arrest you, although they could, and they did in the case of Michael Hardwick was arrested in his own home, and this other gay couple in Lawrence V, Texas, they were also arrested in their home, which made a good case to challenge it. Then the Supreme Court flipped. Sandra Day O'Connor flipped her own vote, and this time she voted to get rid of the sodomy laws. By that time, there were only 13 states that had sodomy laws, and they were reversed. It took 17 years for that. Well, that was, that was you know, uh, what, t- 2003? They could switch again. With this new right-wing Supreme Court, they said if the states want to ban sodomy, they can ban sodomy. If the states want to uh, not have same-sex marriage, they can start reinforcing their laws against it. The courts can change. And that's why we're in such a terrible situation right now with the Trump administration.
2: So sort of like how you earlier summed up the 70s, how would you sum up the the, um, gay rights movement in the 80s?
0: The 80s were awful. They were dominated by AIDS. Here's something that happened, though. AIDS was awful, devastating, killed us. Nothing positive you can say about that. On the other hand... You know, we always used to say, well, if all gay people would turn purple, uh, people would know that they know a gay person, and maybe we could make some progress. Well, AIDS kind of did that, because you couldn't hide in the closet when you had AIDS, basically. Some people tried to pretend they had other diseases, but it basically put it all out front, it, not in the most positive light. It made a lot of parents afraid for their children. It made us afraid for ourselves, but it certainly got people out there, and it also really made gay people fight. You know... Up until then, a lot of the first people to get AIDS were the people on Fire Island, right? Because there was so much, (laughs) you know, intermarriage out there. So they spread it rather quickly. Uh, It's one of those environments, you know, where people had a lot of sex. And a lot of those guys, you know, wealthy, you know, thinking everything's fine, I'm allowed to do this. And then they realized that the government really hated them, that the society really hated them. It woke us up to that, if you didn't know it already. And people had to fight back. And, and it, it, it radicalized a lot of people. And when you lose all your friends, I mean, in some cases, all your friends, it does make you either want to die or fight. And a lot of people fought. So I think in, in that sense, it strengthened the movement, even though it decimated our numbers. And God bless the lesbians for coming out and helping us, because we couldn't have gotten through it without them. We had a massive march on Washington in 1987, biggest march ever, big AIDS demonstrations down there at the same time. They laid out the quilt for the first time with all those names of people with AIDS. So all of this starts to develop some sympathy and humanization of gay people in ways it hadn't before.
2: So let's go back for a moment um, to how during the AIDS crisis, the laws didn't protect LGBTQ people. So tell us what it was like at that point For people to lose their partners Um, and sometimes the partner's family would sort of swoop in and take over the apartment and belongings and you know the surviving partner was sort of left
0: out in the cold well some laws protected us and some didn't i mean the americans with disabilities act was used to protect people with aids they had a disability and that helped we did have human rights laws that protected gay people in some cases But yes, it was tough. I mean, here in New York, I mean, since we didn't have legalization of our relationships, uh, codification of our relationships, very few domestic partnerships, laws by then, and obviously no marriage laws protecting us, you really had to fight to hold on to your place. In New York, we won a court decision that said if you lived with somebody for a long time and they were, you know, you could prove that you were basically your partner and you supported each other, you couldn't get thrown out of rent-stabilized housing where you're protected and your lease is protected. That was the Brashi decision, and it was won by people like uh, Tom Duane, who went on to be a city council member and a state senator. So if they tried to throw a a doctor out because he was treating people with AIDS, we would have protests and we would basically put a stop to that. If somebody didn't want to bury people with AIDS or something, there were rulings against that. But it was tough. Uh, But we had some protection of the laws, but it was a pretty grim period.
2: That's all the time we have for now, but we'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Andy Hum, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me, Andrew.
1: Andy joined us from his home in New York City. He's a journalist and activist and co-host of the weekly TV news program, Gay USA. This has been part two of a three-part series. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Andrew, Alex, Amelie, Dante, Lucas, Drew, and me, Casper. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. 866 488 7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Casper. Thanks for listening.
0: If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.